Welcome to the Questionably Qualified podcast covering Game of Thrones. Using only the best equipment and recorded straight from the comfort of my closet, we really hope you enjoy. Alright, Medic, um, here to talk to you a little bit more about Game of Thrones. This is the Questionably Qualified podcast on the topic. Uh, we're here after Season 6, Episode 3, where we had a nice glimpse of the Tower of Joy, and I would like to go ahead and dive into it. Um, so let's go ahead and start where the episode started, right at the wall. Um, Jon Snow was resurrected at the end of last episode, and we sort of got a glimpse of what the resurrected Jon will be doing. Um, what did he think about that that whole situation? That scene, to me, was mostly just kind of Jon walking out and, you know, kind of blowing everyone's mind and then looking at him like a god. Um, I don't know how much it advanced the plot. Uh, I don't think that it did all that much, but... Um, it did kind of just reinforce, you know, now the wildlings for sure and likely the Brothers of the Night's Watch kind of view John as this, like, supra-normal human. He's, like, kind of a god almost. I, th- I think you're right. I think that one of the important takeaways there, which is one that I was kind of lost on me, is that I was so accustomed to the idea that Jon Snow was going to be resurrected and still alive that I had forgotten the sort of impact it would have on everyone else around him in this universe where that is not a normal thing, where they've never heard of Thoros resurrecting Beric Dondarrion. And right now, I mean, he's he's a messiah, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I agree completely with that. I think that even from like the perspective of show watchers and book readers, I think that the surprise is kind of diminish because I mean, no one thought Jon Snow was dead right like right. he's clearly the main character but um, like even if you did know that like one human being had been resurrected like Melisandre did um, it still kind of blows your absolute mind that this person was resurrected and I mean the only thing that we know from Melisandre's perspective is that um, Beric Dondarrion was resurrected but he was done he was resurrected like if, if, if you're kind of a religious person he was doing good you know he was out there kind of defending sure. um, he was defending the uh, the common folk the common folk and kind of defending the Riverlands so you know maybe there's some connection to that but I, I think that it's easy to kind of forget how big of a deal this would be to the people kind of in the universe just because none of us thought that Jon Snow was dead if you did think that Jon Snow was dead um that's cool. I'm. I, I kind of wish that I got to that I got to enjoy that <laughs> scene as much as you did. Um, like if you really thought he was dead. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot, but that would have been super cool if I actually believed that he was dead. Like if at the, if like I could have seen that scene like at the end of when I finished book five, it would have been really awesome because I didn't have like. I don't know, like five years of psyching myself up that like, there's no way Jon Snow's dead. I think you're right. Yeah. As soon as I read that chapter in the book, I, I think I threw the book physically just threw it across the room and thought, okay, George killed another one of them. But it, it, over the few years of discussing how it can't possibly be true that he's dead, it lost a little bit of its, its shock value there. Yeah. That was that chapter and the red wedding are the only two and both of them I read um, kind of right. I was at my wife, then girlfriend, now wife's house. And both of them, I like read them right before. Like she like had something planned and I remember like being mad at her, but like understanding <laughs> that I wasn't allowed to be mad at her because I was like, she doesn't understand that everything's terrible and no one will ever be happy again. Um, so I, I would have enjoyed it more then, but yeah, it, it, it was kind of, un- I mean, not underwhelming, but I mean, we all knew it was coming. I will say one thing. 
I'm super glad that they didn't draw that out for five episodes, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I was I was worried that maybe at the end of the season they would jump back to that and and tell us that Jon Snow had been resurrected, especially when when Melisandre was sort of pausing uh, to even attempt doing it. But yeah, luckily we we didn't have to suffer through that. Yeah, I thought that when she took off her glamour, there was maybe a chance, you know, she t- she takes off her glamour, that's the stone, and she kind of looks like, you know, this old haggard woman, and we see what she's actually like. Um, I thought that maybe there was going to be a chance that she was going to have to go on this, like, spiritual journey and take his body to some temple and do some rites, and I was like, if I have to watch eight episodes of that, kind of like we have to keep watching Danny just wander through the wilderness when we all know what's going to happen. Yes. Um, I, it's it's going to be too much for me. I agree. I agree. And uh, the only other the only other thing I would say about that particular piece of the uh, show was I did love Davos's uh, pep talk to John, which is mostly like, I know that none of this makes sense, but there's a lot we have to do. So quit whining and let's do some stuff. See, I, I, I'm I, I will completely agree. You like the changes that the showrunners made more than me. I understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some that really piss me off, but. <laughs> the kind of using Davos a lot more and kind of integrating him into the story more and kind of having him at the wall longer and not just having him kind of roam, I thought was a really good decision because he's just an awesome character. Um, he we'll is. Talk, I, I imagine when we talk about the Northmore, we'll kind of touch on the fact that I kind of wish he was in a different place talking to different people, but <laughs> yes. the North could remember, but um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Yes, I, I agree with that. And uh, luckily... I think any character can kind of fill that role, but we'll go ahead and move on instead of, uh, instead of touching on that just now. So the next next place we went was, uh, I believe, somewhere... I'm not I'm actually not sure which, she, which sea it is. Depends on which way they go. But Sam and Gilly are now sailing for Horn Hill, which is Sam's home and the home of House Tarly. Um, and I guess the big reveal there is that Sam is going to Old Town by himself to train as a maester because women aren't allowed at the Citadel. I don't think anything really significant happened, though. Do you have any idea that something did? No, this, I mean, once, like, the first ten minutes of the episode were just kind of filler and kind of, you know, Jon Snow walking out than this. I thought this was just kind of a reminder of, like, hey, guys, remember, you know, Sam and Gilly are still there. And it was sort of reminding everyone that, you know, Gilly was is, like, head over heels desperately in love with Sam. Um, I'm personally not convinced she ends up at Horn Hill. I just don't. I don't think that that's Gilly's story arc. I think that there's kind of more there. At least I certainly hope so, um, because I don't think that Sam's story arc is to find himself at the Citadel and then just kind of train through the war. Um, I imagine that George is kind of, that George kind of showed us his story and is kind of leading us down this path for some point, other than to kind of show us, you know, educational courses. But it seems honestly, that would be a little bit too easy if either of those were to just go off without a hitch whatsoever. Yeah, it, it, it just doesn't seem right. Um, also, the way that they traveled, you do kind of make a good point, because uh, am I right on kind of the location of Horn Hill? It, it would be a weird path to get to Horn, Horn Hill with, before you get to the Citadel, right? I believe so, yes. You kind of have to pass it. I believe that's correct. Strange. So I, I'm not, I, I don't see that ending, but I do think that Sam and uh, Gilly are going to be on a boat for a while. We still have kind of a really awkward scene from book four, I think it was. Yes. Um, book readers remember just a really awkward description of that scene. Um, 
and I, I don't think they'll cut that one out just because the show uh, watchers love Sam so much, and everyone loves Sam. Sam's awesome. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I, I, I doubt we'll see him for another two episodes, and the next time we see him, he'll still probably be at sea. Well, that sounds about right. Okay, so let's go ahead and skip past that then, and we'll go right to The Tower of Joy, which was, uh, for book readers, something that I have been looking forward to pretty much since the show started. And then last week, when they kind of featured it on the next next week on, I was even more excited. I, I think that they did the scene quite a bit of justice. I really enjoyed it. I I had a couple mixed opinions with, with uh, friends of mine who had different takes on it. But as far as I was concerned, the only problem I had was that for show watchers, they didn't really get any of the information that's valuable from that scene. No, I mean, they're clearly building it up and um, we'll show watchers. Maybe, I don't know, who, who knows? When Ned walks up the steps, maybe it's just an empty room and it's like, oh, Arthur Dane, the greatest swordsman in the entire Seven Kingdoms, was just defending a castle for no apparent reason. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't think anyone thinks that that's... Um, real uh they kind of hinted at it in the show that how good arthur dane was a uh, brand kind of mentions it i do think we should touch on that uh y- you kind of know the lore better than me because you've sort of studied a song, uh the the um i'm drawing complete the world of ice and fire weird, the world and ice and fire yeah the weird history book that george r, r. martin decided to release yes um, so, so why so, don't you kind of give the lowdown of arthur dane and his sword Right, so the story there is that the Danes are a Dornish house that live in a castle called Starfall. Uh, There's not much extra information given as to why the house is called Starfall, uh, but they do have a blade that's called Dawn, and it it has the same properties as the rest of the Valyrian steel blades in the kingdom. It's it's just as sharp, it's just as strong. The difference is it's very pale. It's it's pale and white. It's described as milk glass, which I'm not sure what that is, but it is does create a visual for you. And so the legend is that it's actually forged from the metal of a falling star. And the title of the Sword of the Morning, which is what Arthur Dane is described as, is not a hereditary title. Most of the swords that are Valyrian steel or the swords of that value within the Seven Kingdoms get passed down from father to son within the same house forever. Dawn and the Sword of the Morning is a notable exception in the fact that every generation, the greatest fighter in in the area is dubbed the Sword of the Morning and is allowed to wield Dawn. And it might not seem like that big of a deal, but if you, if you think about it, you have a sword that's that valuable and that uh, remarkable, and you're willing to let it go outside the family, you're willing to let it go to someone who might not have any other worldly belongings because they are simply the most formidable warrior around. And Arthur Dane was the sword of the morning during his time. And he was the one who was the primary Banff at the tower of joy showdown. Yeah. I think it's also a really good kind of leadership style in that, um, like, the Danes don't really have much. You know, the books kind of lay this out. But they're, like, a super well-respected and super-loved family. And I think a big part of that is the fact that their commoners, kind of like the Stark commoners, um, absolutely love them. And I think that a large part of that has to do with this kind of stance, which is, you know, it's, it's a pure meritocracy, you mm-hmm. know, with, with, obviously within 
kind of you know the traditional feudal system. But um, the Danes are a super uh, well-respected and super um, powerful house compared to kind of you know the traditional resources that you would think of that would lead to such things. Yes, and and they've had so many members of the house and so many swords of the morning that have served in the king's guard that they are known by everyone to be a foe that you don't want to really cross. No, and all indications kind of point to the fact that whoever the sort of the morning is at any given moment is, you know, automatically a top 10 fighter in Westeros. And by and top 10, I mean, I'm giving the other nine members of that list a lot of deference. Top five is probably closer. Um, but Arthur Dane, by all indications, is the best that we know of, of the swords of the morning. I mean, we're talking top five all time. If we made an NCAA tournament bracket of fights of Game of Thrones, which is something now that I'm saying out loud we should do. I would love to. Um, and, you know, you just kind of assume that everyone's fighting in kind of the way that Rhaegar and Robert met at the Trident, you know, just mm-hmm. straight up mano a mano in, you know, no one's going to taunt anyone like Oberon did. Um, Arthur Dane is automatically a one seed and probably the one one. You know, he's probably the overall number one seed in the entire tournament. Uh, I can't think of no one else off the top of my head. I agree. And then for context, uh, Barristan, you know, everyone knows that Barristan was well known for his swordsmanship and displayed that in his final scene in the show before he finally died. And he was not considered a match for Arthur Dane. I mean, no one during the time period was. And Barristan's probably a two seed in this tournament. Right. Yeah, he's, he's a two, maybe a three seed, but we're talking, you know, top 12 type fighter that we've really heard about in the history of um, A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones. Absolutely. Which, and he basically said, like, I would be murdered by this guy. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and get into what happened there, just just because I think that if uh, people who have only watched the show have a chance to kind of think about everything that's going into it, rather than just be awed by the pretty amazing stunt work, I feel, and, and the fighting that went, went on in that scene. I thought it was fantastic. Then some of those pieces do start to fit together. And so you start with Ned going there, and he does make it known that he's there to find his sister. And the importance of Arthur Dane and that reputation is that he confronts him and he says, where are you and why are you here? You should have been at this place. You should have been at this place. And yet you're here guarding a tower where my sister, where I think my sister is. And if you believe Robert's tale of the rebellion, which I don't think any show watcher believes at this point, um, Robert's tale of the rebellion is that Rhaegar Targaryen kidnaps Lyanna out of her bed at night and then takes her and then, you know, repeatedly rapes her and keeps her as a prisoner. You're not going to send the greatest fighter in the history of Westeros to protect your rape victim. Right. And yet he's sitting there doing nothing except protecting that castle. And so, right. So now you, now as a show watcher, you know that there's something valuable within that tower. It seems that it's Lyanna. Ned is convinced that that's where Lyanna is. And the fight happens and the scene ends, unfortunately, with Ned going to investigate the tower, but not, we don't see anything past that. Now, one question I have for you, and I haven't really prepared for this whatsoever, but 
what do you think about Ned's sort of hearing Bran call out his name? I feel like there was a reference to this in one of the books where Bran called out um, when Ned was in um, a king or a um, oh my god a Godswood. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, when Ned was in a Godswood, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. It's it's interesting. Um, I think that I, I don't think that we're going to get into like a time story with Game of Thrones. I just don't see George R. R. Martin going down that path. Um, you know, you know, I don't think we're going to get into the debate of whether it's lost, whatever happened, happened, <laughs> or we kind of get into the other one, whether time is malleable. Um, I, I just think it's interesting. And I just think it shows that Bloodraven and Bran are super fucking powerful. <laughs> like, I, I think that, um, show watchers have maybe they've kind of got it but they've maybe been deprived of something that book readers get like bran is insanely powerful like if you just did a raw power index like bran wins of Mm -hmm. the entire you know of of the entire main characters or even ancillary characters like bran is so powerful that he can i mean he can kind of the sky's the limit for him i don't know where they're gonna take his character but they've kind of built up his power in this way that, you know, he's basically like a wizard. Yes. And I think that it, it, what it does, it solves a quandary that I had when this part of the story was first going on, which is that's great that Bran can see these things. He's stuck under a tree. If he can't communicate with anyone, this is just an extra perspective that you're lending me. Now, if he can, in some degree, communicate with the people that are near a weirwood tree that are near, one of the dire wolves, anything like that, suddenly he's once again a player on the grander stage. I agree. I also think, and this is, the show has done a lot of this. I, I originally wasn't entirely sure whether Bran was going to leave the cave. Um, I'm also not entirely sure whether Bran ends up as a good guy or bad guy. Um, that uh, comes down to, you know, in the books they talk about how if you, kind of if you're a warg which is what brand is where you can kind of put your soul and your mind in someone else or another being they kind of talk about doing that to a human being it's like the worst thing that anyone can do you know they call it an abomination like we're yes. talking up there on top sins and you know the show hasn't done this as much but book brand has done some really questionable moral things with kind of his powers so th- that's something i'm kind of interested to see but uh, i got sidetracked there the main thing is i think brand does leave the cave at some point i don't know how and i don't know in what way, um, but it could also just be, you know, Bran just wargs his way out of the cave through other people. True. But then he does, or through other people or through other, you know, animals. But then the way he ultimately really communicates is with this kind of telepathic power. Yes. Yes. Okay, so let's uh, let's go ahead and bump on from, from beyond the wall, and we'll go to the next spot they, uh, they went to, which... Is probably the most disappointing storyline of this so far, which is Danny's quest to, well, Danny's journey to Vegas Dothrak now, which is where she is. Um, I got nothing out of that scene. I don't know about you. Um, I don't think there was anything to get out of that scene. She's at Vegas Dothrak. Um, she's going to be. Is this the scene? No, she is she tried yet in this scene? She's not tried yet. She confronts the Dosh Kaleen and yeah. she tells her that she's going to be tried rather than being accepted okay. because she didn't immediately go there after Paul Drago's death. Danny is defiant. I feel like it's the exact same thing as the last episodes, which is Danny's a captive, but a defiant captive. And and I know we don't generally talk about the next on here, but 
the kind of next on did concern me and that it looked like um, Dario and Jorah might be kind of plant. It might run in there and kind of do this kind of like secret covert escape plan as opposed to just her dragon showing up and killing everyone, which is for sure what would happen. Um, and if that happens, I'm really worried that Danny's going to be in this kind of captivity limbo and we might even see a freaking trial and she doesn't get out till episode six. We're like, she's not going to be killed by yes the, by the Dothraki. Like, there's just a 0% chance of that happening. Right, and, and I'm still a little upset that Drogon is nowhere to be seen. I, I suppose that they're positing that his arrival at the most critical moment in Marine was purely accidental, but to me that, that spoke more to a connection between Drogon and Danny and him understanding she was in trouble than it was just he happened to be flying over ahead and decided to rescue her. And, and I do feel like the the show creators kind of made, they screwed up a scene here because the scene in the book, the way it's set up, the way the book five ends is Danny, um, this Kalisar approaches Danny and she's standing there with Drogon with this gigantic fucking dragon. And she realizes that it's Cal Pono who's leading this like 50,000 man Kalisar. And this is a guy that basically after Drogo, after, uh, yeah, Cal Drogo died, he took over the Kalisar, but he either killed or raped one of Danny's handmaidens, and she kind of made this vow, like, the next time I see you, you know, I'll kill you. And then book five ends with him riding up, and she has a dragon. So, like, they missed this just really cool moment, because, like, I assume what happens off screen at the end of that chapter is Danny just burns him to death. Right. And then she has a Kalisar, which is where <laughs> I kind of think that this is all going. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the dragon's going to show up, and, you know, the Dothraki recognize strength. Um but I, I just don't know why they're doing it this way. It, it just seems so unnecessary. Yes, and I think I think the only piece that might redeem it is something that I covered a little bit in the article I wrote, which is the legend of the, the stallion that mounts the world, which is a really old Dothraki legend that was originally applied to Danny's soon-to-be son with Khal Drogo. Unfortunately, he died in the womb, and so... They thought that the legend was lost, but the legend goes that there will be a, a great call one day that will unite all of the Dothraki clans under one banner, and they will go forth and conquer the world from there. Maybe they're setting up the fact that Danny is actually going to be the stallion that mounts the world. Um, it's it, it would be kind of a an interesting flip on the gender of that one legend. Um, but it would also require something happening happening at Vaeus Dothrak that puts her in a position of power over every one of the other Colossars. It requires dragons. It requires Drogon to show up. Yes. Um, which is, it just has to happen. Like, this can't end with Dario and Jorah, like, getting her out of this, right? Like, it just, it would be so silly, and it would be so unnecessary, and it would just really be dragging something out for six episodes where really what we kind of want to see happen is Drogon just show up and start murdering people, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, maybe what they're doing, um, and you've kind of hit, you, you've discussed this before where it seems like the dragons can kind of notice the stress in their riders. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to do the trial and maybe they're going to do all this BS, but then ultimately what happens is like when she's going to get executed, Drogon shows up and then she unites the Kalasar. 
or all the Kalasars. But if she does that, and that's the story, we are going to wait a while, and that won't be till episode seven or eight, and that's going to suck. Yes, that would be very disappointing. And I understand that maybe they're running into some time issues when it comes to plot lines in different places, but yeah, that would be not not a great way for that that storyline to go. I feel like maybe what they're doing here is for the for people that have read book five. Danny spends a lot of time on the throne in Marine, just like complaining and like wanting to hook up with Dario, but then deciding that she shouldn't, but then doing it again, but then not wanting to. It, it's like really, really awful. Very um, engaging book, book storytelling there. The the Danny chapters in book five, up until like the last two, make you want to just put like an ice pick in your eye. Yep. Um. So maybe the sh- the showrunners were like, okay. In order to kind of align all the timing, we have to drag one thing out with Danny, and better to drag out this part than to drag out her just kind of whatever the hell book five was. Right, maybe they decided they've they've shown enough of conflicted rulers trying to figure out what to do, and we want to get away from that a little bit. Yeah, book book five, there was a lot of beating um, dead horses in book five, and, you know, Maureen was like, we get it. George, it's really hard to rule. Right. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we'll we'll bump on from uh, from Marine. Uh, actually, we'll bump on to Marine uh, from Veus Dothrak, mm-hmm. uh, where we have Tyrion still still trying to rule a city that is divided. And the biggest takeaway there, I think, the, the biggest point was that Varys discovers that the former slave cities that they had sacked before reaching Marine have basically reverted to their old form and are the ones that are behind the Sons of the Harpy murdering Unsullied in the streets and kind of behind the entire rebellious faction. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that That's completely in line with the book. I mean, at the, at the end of book five, we have uh, the young Kai for sure, and I think um, Volantis are kind of outside the gates of Marine, um, ready to kind of attack. So I think that they're... I, I don't know exactly where they're going with that, but I think that this kind of funding, um, this funding is going to lead to some kind of broader conflict. But Tyrion's scheming does have me intrigued because I honestly have no prediction on that, which is rare for me on this show. Yes, he seems to have an idea. I have no clue what that is because he's right that he can't lead the Unsullied on a march on those cities. If he does then Marine will devolve into chaos because the, the Unsullied is the only thing keeping the peace there whatsoever, and it's obviously not even a peace. The dragons are now freed, but he doesn't have any way to command them, and I'm pretty sure that it's beyond his abilities to just say, you know, hey, Rhaegal, go ahead and burn Yunkai to the ground, please. I also, I mean, the dragons are freed, but they're they're staying in their cave, and they're not, like, rampage. That, that gets on. That's just stupid. It's um, odd. It, it's very odd, and I mean, I feel ridiculous saying the phrase unrealistic when I'm discussing, you know, fictional <laughs> dragons in a fantasy universe, but it's pretty fucking unrealistic considering the universe. Yes, yes, I agree. So I think I think the one big takeaway there, uh, at least the, the part that I got out of it, was I think if Danny gets back, or when Danny gets back, she might finally realize that this is not a sustainable situation, and she has to choose. She cannot be the ruler of Marine and the freer of all the slaves in Essos and also pursue the Iron Throne in Westeros. Yeah, and I think that it's worth noting that 
not only can she not do both, I don't think she can do the first one. Danny alone can't solve the societal problems of, you know, basically institutions that kind of accept slavery. You know, maybe, maybe if she devoted her entire life and all three dragons to it, you know, she could do it in the same way um, that the Conqueror, to, that Ares Targaryen the Conqueror took over, um, yes, you know, Westeros through just raw dragon force. But I don't think she can do either, and I'm hoping that maybe Varys and Tyrion can kind of get that across to her. I agree. I agree. Okay, so we're going to bump on to King's Landing, uh, where a lot happened. I think there was a lot of time spent there. I'm not sure what... I'm still not sure where we're going, besides maybe to a state of even more chaos, which is very entertaining. I'm very curious to see how it plays out. So what we saw there, just as a quick recap, we saw uh, Maester... Well, not Maester former Maester Kyburn, uh, dealing with Varys' little birds, the, ch- the child informants that he uses to gather intel. And he's, he's winning their alliance, but later on we find out that Cersei is essentially asking them to get more intel on people who are mocking her or opposing her in any way whatsoever, which it, it will be great for Zombie Mountain to be slaughtering people. But it seems like a wild misuse of a very valuable asset. I mean, I agree. I mean, we—they finally have shown it in the book, in in the show. Um, book readers kind of there were hints at it for a little bit, um, but we kind of knew that you know Varys was imploring children. Um, at the end of book five, it gets like super confirmed um, that Varys is his, these little birds are children that he basically you know beggars and peasants that he you know, has hide around the castles and show secret hiding places and all that to get this information. The one thing that, as I'm saying this, maybe the way that the little birds are going is, like, Cersei's completely using them wrong, and I agree completely. Like, they're one of, if not the most valuable non-force resource in all of Westeros, um, outside of, like, raw just money, um, which is basically just valuable because you can buy force with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the best information source in Westeros, Maybe they're still super loyal to um, Varys, and maybe at some point, because I mean, Varys has to get back to King's Landing and has to get back to Westeros, just like Danny does and Tyrion does. Like yes. they're not gonna end this thing over in Essos. Maybe there's kind of gonna be some uh, double crossing there, some kind of scheming that happens on that side. Because other than that, um, the only other point of that scene could just be kind of showing that Cersei. And Kyburn are, you know, kind of misusing uh, this resource, plus the fact that Kyburn um, really does have Cersei's trust at this point. Like, Cersei is all along the necromancer train. Yes, um, and I think I think that part of that that's interesting is that it seems like, I, I still am not sure what to make of the scene with King Tommen and the High Sparrow. It was an odd confrontation that de-escalated quickly, but the High Sparrow still felt threatening. And by the end of it, it seemed like King Tommen was just sort of agreeing with him entirely. And if that's the case, then what you might have happening now is a three-headed issue in King's Landing. You would have the Lannisters represented by Cersei and Jaime uh, Kyburn, Zombie Mountain on one part, 
you have the Baratheons, the named Baratheons, represented by King Tommen, Kevin Lannister, the Queen of Thorns, and that small council. And then you'd have the Faith as the third piece of that puzzle. And if that's the case, then it's it's getting even... It's not moving more towards resolution in King's Landing. It's actually getting even messier. I, I, I agree. I, I The King Tom thing is weird. I feel like maybe it was just to show that the High Sparrow is really good at what he does. Maybe they're going to take Tommen in this sort of super... Um, kind of religious way and have him kind of be, you know, kind of a religious king, kind of in the, for the book readers, kind of, you know, like Baylor the Blessed. Mm-hmm. I will say that the show, you know, Kevin's there, but um, I don't think that they really conveyed it that much. Kevin Lannister is the last Lannister. Right. Um, in, that has like any power that can hold the house together. Tyrion is both an imp, so he was screwed from day one, and, you know, everyone hates him. Plus, he killed his dad. Um, and also, everyone kind of thinks he killed the king, King Joffrey. Um, so he's out. Cersei's fucking insane and was just paraded naked through the streets of King's Landing. She's full so rampage she's, mode now. Yeah, so she's out. Um, and then uh, Jamie is Kingsguard, so he's out. Plus, he was Kingsguard when he killed the king, so he was screwed either way. Um, yeah, he'll never have the favor of the populace because of that reputation, which seems unfair, but... Yeah, and Kevin Lannister is basically, like, a Tywin light. You know, he was Tywin's, like, second-in-command, his deputy, and he did really good at that. You know, he was all about Tywin's scheme, was never really objecting to them in any meaningful way, um... Yes, I think that's correct. And I now one thing that I just kind of came to mind that I'd be curious to get your take on is, given the way that the episode before this ended with Tommen seeking out his mother for help, is there any chance that Tommen was pretending to get along that well with the High Sparrow? That's an interesting question. And I'm going to go with no, and here's the reason. And it's sort of an attenuated reason. Tommen in the books is super freaking young. He is. And, like, is infatuated with kittens. That's pretty much all we know about <laughs> Tommen in the books. Like, Tommen in the books just really likes kittens. Him and Marjorie aren't married. There isn't that weird, like, thing where Marjorie's sleeping with, a, with like, a 15-year-old. Um, and, like, you know, if Rob at 14 can, like, sever a nation and, like, declare the North his own nation, then Tommen could scheme at 15. But book Tommen just really likes cats. Yes. That's really all that we got. <laughs> so I just don't see him scheming. That's, that's basically where I'm coming I kind of agree. I, I, I only thought of that when I remembered exactly how the last episode ended, but it seems like that would be too abrupt a turnaround for someone who has been portrayed as so weak-minded and so so behind on any sort of political intrigue to suddenly be playing someone of the power of the High Sparrow that way. I think what's more likely with Tommen is uh, Marjorie's going to get out of prison at some point. Like, Marjorie's not going to get her head cut off, unless Marjorie does get her head cut off, and then if that happens, then King's Landing will burn to the ground. Um, There will not be a King's Landing anymore. I I firmly believe that. She's definitely the favorite of the populace there. Yeah. Like, the populace will riot. The Tyrells will, like literally invade the sept and declare war on the faith militant and you're going to have a church and a government fight
fighting in the streets of the capital city. It's, I mean, honestly, like, I, I, it would be really weird because it would make the fourth book even more pointless if that's how this ends. <laughs> um, but it would, it would make for some really good television, I will say. Oh, I'd love to watch it, yeah. Yeah, I kind of wish, like, there could be, like, an alternate episode where it's, you know, like, the end of the movie Clue, where they kind of give you the three endings. That'd be great. Where it's like, this is ridiculous and it didn't happen, but, like, let's just see this giant battle. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I think we've covered King's Landing enough, at least. Uh, so let's check in on Arya, who I, I am excited to announce is no longer blind. Uh, it, was, it was because of her montage. Yes. <laughs> they managed to put her through a training montage, uh, very similar... May, not quite at the Rocky Four level of montage, but definitely in line with most '80s movies. It it only was missing "Eye of the Tiger" or some kind of other <laughs> inspirational um, song about overcoming obstacles. It was it was a training montage in every sense of the word, up until the point where like even like it ends with her like blocking the final killing blow, and then like. <laughs> that girl just like walks away because like, right. oh, she's completed her training. She got that one block. <laughs> I will say though that after that ends, Jake and Hakar in like a little bit later kind of leads her away when she's still blind and she's still kind of like walking gingerly cause she's blind. And you're like, no, 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 no. Right. She like, should have more confidence than that at this point. Right. Yeah. Like you can fight with like, you could <laughs> like Ari in that show, I could have a sword and she could have that staff and she could be blind and she'd kick the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she can walk with confidence without her eyes. It, 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 it just kind of pissed me off. It's I kind of think so too. Uh, one, one interesting bit I think there is that she and Jockin had her drink from the pool in the first floor of the house of black and white, which the reason that she was hesitating was that that's the pool that they usually give to people as the gift, which is yeah. I guess euthanasia, death potion. Yeah, it's, it's it's they are um, the faceless men are super progressive. They believe in the man in uh, <laughs> men's right to die. Yep. Um, and that's kind of their gift. They they literally worship the god or gods or whatever. Um, they kind of view it as one entity of literally just the act of dying. And basically, the people that want to die should be able to, and they kind of make this weird potion that lets people die. That's what people come to the House of Black and White for. Yes, uh, release from suffering, and mm-hmm. and so for some reason, I, I I don't know why. Besides magic, instead of killing Arya, it just cured her of blindness. Which, again, all in on montage, a little bit montagey, but otherwise great. I wish that uh, I. I... I, I, I want to kind of watch that again with a montage uh, song put over it. I think that that would be awesome. Yes, from Team America? Yes, the montage song from Team America. To anyone listening that does know the montage song from Team America, listen to it, then watch the Aria um, kind of montage again, and yeah, it lands. Yeah, it's, it's pretty perfect. Okay, so the last stop we had, uh, besides The Wall, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, was Winterfell. And, and Winterfell might have been the most interesting development from a long-term standpoint. Um, as usual with a lot of scenes in this show and a lot of pieces of this book, nothing actually happened, but things are positioning themselves to happen. So in Winterfell, Ramsay has a visitor who is the, I suppose, designated representative of House Umber. House the Umber... son of the great John. Right, and House Umber was one of the three houses that Ramsay named as the most critical to hold in the North. He named the Karstarks, the Umbers, and the Manderleys. 
We know that he already has the alliance of the Karstarks because of his weird, creepy friend. And we know that the Manderleys... Well, we know nothing about the Manderleys, I guess. But the Umbers, the last time we heard from the Umbers, they were denying King Stannis' request for assistance. And they said, House Umber recognizes one king in the north, and his name is Stark. Now, in this scene, the Umber representative says that he's willing to ally himself with the Boltons in order to defend against the Wildlings. And he claims that he wasn't thrilled with the way that the Great John ran things anyway. The important part is that he needs help from them to defend against the Wildlings. And he also, I think significantly, refuses to kneel or swear allegiance to the Boltons in any way. He just says... We need your help. And he kind of points out, he says, remember, your father swore allegiance to Rob Stark, and, you know, you had all these vows to your father. So, like, why are you asking about my vow? Like, clearly you don't care. And, you know, in the show, they were kind of, uh, he was trying to kind of act like this insubordinate person. I do not think that the Umbers are, I mean, that's obviously Reagan. I don't think that the Umbers are on the side of the Boltons. Um, I don't. I don't think so either. And I'll, I'll give you my first few hits. So let's let's do this one by one. I'll give you the okay. reasons that I don't think that's the case, and I'll just get your response for them. Um, one reason would be I don't think the Wildlings are much of a threat to the Umbers, especially given that the Wildlings are currently at Castle Black. I would completely agree with that. Um, I think that honestly, the Wildlings and this has kind of been, like, the pragmatic stuff of, of, like, the Umbers, if they're really being this pragmatic, like, they're pretending like they are. Um, if they're going to be that pragmatic where they don't care about anything, the Wildlings aren't going to attack a fucking castle. <laughs> like, they're not going to, like, go after anywhere close to the Umber seat of government. They're just going to kind of, like, pillage the countryside. Because the Wildlings really are just raiders. Yeah, I mean, the, the Wildlings, as, as we talked about, as we've talked about before, they're a guerrilla force. They don't attack castles. They get destroyed by people in armor. But, I mean, if you have a farm or if you have, you know, some crops or some cattle or just some gold and you're kind of on the road, they're going to, you know, they're going to destroy you. But if you have, like, anything that resembles an organized force, you're going to eviscerate the umber or the wildlings. I mean, bear in mind, Stannis, when he comes north and, you know, the wildlings, this is their entire force that they were going to attack the wall with the force that Mance Raider spent years of his life, like decade of his life, more or less kind of putting together and Stannis who by any stretch of the imagination had a force that would have gotten eviscerated by any other major player in Westeros based on sheer numbers ran through them like a knife through butter. Like mm -hmm. it was a complete and utter destruction. Just having organization and having um, armored, armor armored troops. And, yeah, and being equipped, just, you know, that's all it is. And John tells uh, Egret, or Egret this kind of when they're talking, like, you're all going to die. Like, you're terrible at this, at, like, fighting wars. So I, I don't buy that part at all. Okay, so the next part that I, I thought was the Umbers, when they've been depicted before, are maybe the most fiercely loyal representatives of the Starks that we've run into, uh, particularly Rob. I mean, we knew that they were loyal to Ned, but with the exchanges between the Great John, the Small John, and Rob, 
they were very, very loyal to Rob. And the the explanation for that would be that, well, this this representative, this son of the great John clearly didn't like him very much. I, I don't know where any sort of backup information would be that would suggest that the great John was not loved by his family and, and uh, lieges. Yeah, I um, pretty much any family in Game of Thrones, I would kind of assume that this could be true. But the uh, excluding a, fl- a few, and the Umbers are one of them. Um, they everything indicates that they love the Great John, that the Great John's super respected. Um, and it's, I mean, the Great John um, is kind of held at the twins um, right now. Uh, he was captured at the Red Wedding because he was just way too drunk to fight. Um, and it's not like they come there trying to trade for their father, which. I still don't think the Umbers would do, but, like, at least you could be like, okay, from a pragmatic standpoint, maybe this one son is being a dick. Um, but yeah, I, it, there's just no indication of that. The Umbers are – they seem well-loved. Um, the Great John is – seems to be one of the better rulers in the North. Um, I just I just don't buy it. Yeah, and and his description actually kind of reminds me of Robert Baratheon before becoming a way overweight king. Is this mm-hmm. giant of a man who's kind of like a jolly giant that everyone loves to be around because all he wants to do is drink and fight, and it seems like everyone would like a guy like that. And as a minor lord, I think you can get away with that, right? You know, you you have like minor king's justice to dispense, like you know Robert obviously couldn't get away with that, and like Ned or any you know major lord couldn't get away with any warden or any one of the or any of the lords of the major houses couldn't get away with that but being kind of a minor lord where your job is you know to fight when the banners are called to dispense a little bit of justice but also just to kind of keep your people happy like the great john seems like he would be that's straight in his wheelhouse right so there's one more bit that i thought was was interesting if you are to believe that the umbers are actually betraying the starks this way and that is, they presented both Osha and Rickon. And I can't think of a single reason why you would keep Osha alive if that was your plan. See, yeah. I, I, you would keep Osha alive if you didn't have Rickon. And it was like, she has information and we're willing to trade this information. That would make sense. But you have Rickon. So what the hell, you know? Right. Here's a gift of the single most dangerous threat to your throne and also a wildling girl. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks. (laughs) Um, I mean, they they did show what presumptively was a dire wolf head or a really big wolf head. I I don't think it was Shaggy Dog. I just don't see that as something that would have happened. I agree. And I think there's one there's one thing that I thought of after I had talked to you after the episode last night, and that is. We know that dire wolves have been seen south of the wall for the first time in a long time. That was in book one that that was the case. Like since then, two or three. Right. Since then, we know in, from the books that there are dire wolf packs roaming Westeros now. I don't think well, we it's know that, that we, hard. We, we know that there's a pack of wolves led by a dire wolf, Nymera. Right. And I, so, I, I, does she have other dire wolves? She does. Yes. Okay. And I don't think it's that hard to believe that the Umbers, being that close to the wall might have dire wolves around them. So potentially there was a wild dire wolf that they killed and took the head of to present in order to pull this plan off. The, the, the worst argument I have for that is that the Umbers don't come across as the most cunning group. 
That's because they're not the third family that is key to holding the North that we're still waiting to see. The Mandalorians. And, and this is kind of because you and I clearly see eye to eye on the fact that the Umbers, we don't think that the Umbers betrayed uh, Rick and Stark no. and are betraying Starks. We just, we just don't see it. But a huge part of that would be the Mandalorians would have to be involved because the Umbers do not scheme. No. They just, they, they kill very, very well. <laughs> they don't scheme. Right. So I think that that might be, that might be the introduction for the Mandalorians. Um, and there is one thing I wanted to touch on real quick before we finish up the episode. And that is, where is Littlefinger? I, I He was destined for the North the last time we saw him. He was leaving King's Landing uh, with the approval of Cersei to attack the Boltons. And since then, we haven't... I don't know if you've seen him at all this season, correct? Uh, we haven't. He appears to have lost his teleportation power. Unfortunately. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's sad um, for him. Because he could just kind of teleport around uh, <laughs> Seven Kingdoms last season. Um I don't know. I, I, I think I remember seeing he was on the next on. Um, I imagine him and Sans are going to interact, intersect at some point soon. And I do think that now that Sansa is uh, reunited with Brienne and that Sansa kind of has someone that isn't Littlefinger in her camp, the kind of luster of Peter Baelish Littlefinger is going to start to wear off. And I think that their interests aren't going to coincide as much. I mean, people have to remember for for show watchers or book readers that don't kind of have an encyclopedic knowledge of this thing or haven't read them way too many times like I have. Um, Littlefinger gave up Ned to be beheaded for all intents and purposes. Like he said that Ned, like he pretended like he was working with Ned and then handed the gold cloaks, the King's Landing guard over to, um, he, then he handed them over to the Lannisters and basically, like, he, he said that he he said that he had them in Ned's camp. And then um, he handed them over to the Lannisters basically in a way that ensured that Ned was going to get captured by Joffrey, and which ultimately led to his beheading. I feel like Sansa's going to learn that at some point, and she's going to freak the fuck out. I think so, too. I think that there's no way... I, I don't think that the boundless... Um, the boundless climb of Littlefinger will continue without any sort of check whatsoever. I agree. Um, I don't. I don't know what will happen when he loses Sansa. I, it, it's interesting to see, but I, I, I think that their relationship may fray soon. Okay. Um, so the only thing we have to touch on then is back at the wall. Uh, we we zip back at the end of the episode, and John has his assailants. Or at least part of his assailants. It seemed to me that there was a larger group that was there at the end of last season stabbing him. Yeah, and he for sure had more knife wounds than four. Right. So, and uh, no one seemed to stab him twice, but, well, whatever. Anyway, um, so he, he goes to hang them. I, I liked Alistair's last speech there. Uh, you know, the guy's a dick, but he's he's convinced that he's correct. And I'll give he's him a little... an honorable dick. Right, yeah, an honorable dick. Um... And he, John swings the sword, which I think is kind of the last vestige of the old John that was so bound to his duty that sometimes he would make decisions that weren't the best. I, I will say in that episode and book or in that scene and book readers uh, will kind of understand this. I was really hoping that John made Ed fetch him a block 
Yes. Really wanted that to happen. That'd have been great. Um, That'd have been great. He did. He did get. He did get Janice Slint that way though, which is pretty good. Which is pretty good. But he didn't say Ed fetch me a block. I just wanted that line. Yes. Um, I love that line, but it would have been a little gratuitous to have to watch him cut four people's heads off. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It might have been. Might have gotten old after the first couple. Even for Game of Thrones, that violence would have been a little unnecessary. Right. So after after he cuts the rope and they all hang, he walks off. And he he hands his cloak to Ed, which I believe is is symbolically transferring his title of Lord Commander. It doesn't work that way. They'll they'll have to elect another Lord Commander, um, but that's him at least surrendering his post as the Lord Commander. Yeah, I mean clearly he can't just hand it over. And you know they do have actually the Night's Watch has the closest thing to a democracy here, so Ed is not automatically. Lord Commander, um, I don't know how much more of the Night's Watch we'll see, but I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, show runners just kind of glaze over that part and just let us assume that Ed's the Lord Commander, because, you know, if uh, your resurrected Jesus God um, anointed his replacement, I have a hard time imagining anyone would vote against him. Yes, yeah, it seems likely that he would get the vote in that case. Um, And as he walks away, he says, my watch has ended, and... In case there's anyone out there who's uh, going back to the fact that John has always been wildly obsessive about his vows, which is an understandable thing to to think, um, I'm, I'm going with the fact that he's using the I was dead loophole. And I think that, that when you swear a life's vow and you die and get resurrected, you're able to walk away from that without anyone really impugning you. I think, you know, as a lawyer... Um... That argument makes sense. You know, I see both sides of the argument, but I could I could for sure uh, advocate a client that had that position. Yeah. I would have no I would have no qualms about it. I would be like, this is a reasonable interpretation of the law. Right. I swore it for life. My life ended. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think that's pretty much what happened this week. Let me see if there's anything in here that I wanted to touch on. Otherwise, I, the, the, I mean, to me, the last question is, what's John doing? Oh, oh, you're right. Yeah, we should definitely discuss that. Okay, so John is walking away now, and he's only symbolically walking away from the Night's Watch. It's not like he's just going to walk to the next closest town. That's a long way away. So yeah, there's a huge amount of just snow land Yes. him and anything. So I think he's walking back to his quarters in that scene. Um, and from there, it's a question of, so what? what is his motivation I, in the show, does he know that Sansa, that Ramsay married Sansa? He did hear about that, I believe. I believe, yes, he does know that. And if that's the case, he might be targeting Winterfell next. Um, the, the trouble there is that he knows that the Boltons have an army. He knows, unlike some other forces in Westeros, that the Wildlings are not enough to assault the castle. Yes, and he knows that and he also knows that the others are coming, but I have a feeling that maybe he's going to kind of gloss over that for a little bit. I think um, I think he has other matters on mind, yes. Yeah, I think that John right now, his move is to get an army. And I only, I see three potential avenues. I think two, honestly, I have no idea. All three are likely. I think that the most likely is that the wildlings are going to come and be like, hey, resurrection, Jesus, um, <laughs> can we just like, Whatever you say. Moms and bros? Yeah. Yeah. Option two would be 
and this is once again assuming that we're right about the Umbers and presumptively the Manderleys, that he somehow intersects with them, and they're like, holy shit. Um, and last Earth, are you Ned Stark's kid, you also were resurrected. So, right, and yeah. Last Earth is the closest city to the Night's Watch. Yes. Um, and then the third would be, the fifth book talks about these kind of mountain clans that Stannis goes and recruits. Um, the show has kind of glossed over them or hasn't even discussed them at all. I don't know if it'll go there, but I could, you know, in the style of the show, if they really wanted to drag this out, we could get several episodes of John just trudging through snow and talking with northerners in the mountains. Yes. And they'll all be very wildlingy. Um, that's wildling with a L E or L Y <laughs> on the end of it. Um, and they'll all, you know, like fighting and like drinking and like, you know, war and stuff like that, but they all love the Starks, so Right. And I, I think that the most likely there is to is to get the Umbers on their side and I'm not sure what's gonna happen if he shows up and the Umbers are gone and Rickon is gone, but he never knew Rickon was there in the first place, so it might just be considered, you know, found money for the Umbers. Mm-hmm. So if that's the yeah. case, and he moves on, I think we're still going to get the Snowball. It seems reasonable to believe that we'll get the Snowball before this is all said and done. Yeah. Some Ramsey Snow versus Jon Snow for those right. that, didn't, that don't know what the Snowball is. Um, I think that that... Jon Snow's going to end up... Yeah, he's going to end up at the head of a force. Um, I could see... You know, Rickon and the Umbers and slash the Manderleys, they execute their kind of plan and kind of wreak havoc um, within um, the Boltons, kind of, you know, within the Boltons, uh, dread, within the Dreadfort, within their castle. Mm-hmm. And then somehow, ultimately, you know, Ramsey doesn't get killed and he's out with a force, then John and him meet. I don't think that those two things are contradictory at all. Sure. Um, I think that maybe, you know, they could happen within an episode of each other. I think so, too. I think so, too. Okay, so let's do some quick shots before before we sign off. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the Tower of Joy, because it was one of my favorite bits in the book, even though it was about a one-and-a-half-page scene. Um, yes. Do the show watchers get the same level of information that the book readers got, or do they leave it there? They're... We're going to see Ned go up the steps. I just think that we have to see Ned go up the steps. I'm not anyone that's like a diehard show watcher, which is probably the people that are actually listening to this podcast, know what most people think is up those steps. Um, but I'm not going to allude to it more. I'll kind of leave the surprise. But we have to see. It's just, it's too important to what I think is going to ultimately happen. Okay. Do we hear from Dorn next episode? And if so, what do you think their plan is? I really hope not. I just want Dorn, and I actually like Dorn in the books, and I kind of hope that they have something to do with it, but I want this iteration of Dorn to go away. Um, I think that I think that the Dornish men, or I guess now the Dornish women, because it's the Sand Snakes and Olaria, um, I think that ultimately their troops and the, you know, Lannister, Baratheon, Tyrell troops, uh, the King's Landing faction collectively. I think that somehow Dorne and them will intersect. Um, I, if that's the case, I just kind of hope that we get a surprise where Dorne shows up somewhere because I can't take it anymore. I hate it so much. And it would have to happen soon, right? Because if not, 
then Ilaria would have just murdered Doran to do the same thing Doran was doing, which is sitting back and scheming. Yeah, she, she must be assembling troops. Like, the troops must be assembled, and, like, you gotta assume the march is coming. I think so, too. Um, so so I, I feel like we it, they will, they could next arrive with an army, and then maybe, like, we'll see Darkstar or, like, some other really cool Dornishmen, and, like, we can all just pretend, like, that season and two episodes worth of things just never happened. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, uh, the last one for this week, uh, I do have another one that popped up, but I'm going to save it for next week, um, is last time I asked you if Arya would get her vision back this season, and you said it might happen as soon as next episode. Nailed that one. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of myself for that. As you should be. Does Arya reach Westeros this season? <laughs> That's a tougher question. Um, I think maybe the season ends with her either leaving for Westeros or getting to Westeros. But I feel like there might be a mission. Like, I think that what's going to happen for the next couple episode episodes is we're going to learn about the Faceless Men. I mean, there's a bunch of Faceless Men lore that, you know, their origins and what they're kind of all about. And, you know, what Truck and I have been describing has been stuff that we've infer that, like, you could infer from the show. But there is kind of a lot of lore behind there, and the story of where they come come from is super cool. So I think we'll be getting that for a couple episodes. Then, like, maybe there could be, you know, knowing the showrunners, there could be some, like, mission to go kill some, like, merchant or some, like, you know, scheming bravasi. And then ultimately she gets to Westeros. I want to say yes, she gets to Westeros this season, but not anytime soon. And she's probably not doing anything when she gets there, right? It'll probably be like arriving there as opposed to getting there and, and wreaking havoc. Thank you for listening to the Questionably Qualified podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and please send any questions or comments you have to us when you have a chance. We really appreciate the feedback. Mm-hmm.